This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome along to the Blood Red channel. I'm Guy Clark as we once again rewind the clock and take a leisurely stroll down memory lane. Nostalgia aplenty in our latest episode of Julier's Treble Winners as we look back on that oh-so-sweet season incredibly 20 years ago now. Alongside me as ever, our resident Red Dan Kay and coming up with the cup set to play such a significant role in this season, we look back on the start of the Reds UEFA Cup run in the month of September as well as early inconsistencies beginning to creep in to the Reds league form. First up though, Dan, must start by asking you how you are. How are you? Not too bad, thanks, Di. Um, pleased that football's got underway for the new season to give us a nice bit of a, a diversion from uh, the serious public health situation that we're all in with, with the pandemic. But uh, always nice to tell you. And, you know, just when you said then, 20 years since the treble year. Makes me feel a bit old, but... <laughs> Some very happy memories of that year and um, looking forward to getting stuck into it, really. Yeah, like you say, like it's obviously we're going to look back on September. We'll we'll talk through obviously some of the themes for the season and the key characters within it. But obviously by this stage, Liverpool had had a full sort of uh, month of the, the league campaign as we're going to get on to the UEFA Cup. The European journey was beginning in, in this month as well, whereas mm. we're deep into September now, almost approaching on October, of course, and we don't even know who the Reds have in their Champions League group. It, it really is bonkers. It's, yeah, it's, it is like we're living in the kind of parallel universe, dystopian society. It's, you know, even, you know, nine months ago at the start of this year, you could, you could never have expected that we are where we are, but I guess this, you know, what we're living through at the moment, I suppose, shows the the importance of football in people's lives. You know, it's whether times are good, bad or indifferent. Football is one of those constants that gives people some kind of sense of continuity and, and community. And, and even if obviously, you know, we're, none of us have been in a, in, a, in a stadium for, you know, for six months now. And sadly, it looks like it's going to be at least another six months before that happens again. <clears throat> Just that sense of a football community, even if we are distanced from each other, gives, I think, people that slight sense of hope and something to just take their minds away from the stresses and strains and obviously the worries and the anxieties of, of the current situation. I mean, I seem to remember in the summer of 2000, wasn't there a big thing about fuel shortages? And there were massive queues. I mean, you're a bit younger than me, so you, you probably don't remember it as well, but... It, I remember at the time that was like a little mini crisis. I remember there were huge, huge queues. I think Ellesmere Port, Stanley Port refineries there and protests. And I mean, I wasn't driving them, but I remember that it was a big deal. You know, those who were driving were expressing a lot of concerns about how we're going to get to, how we're going to get to work, how we're going to pick the kids up. And it's you know, you look back at that now and you think, wow, a drop in the ocean compared to you know the disruption we've all faced to our lives now. But that's life, isn't it? It throws you these curveballs, and we've all just got to try and chest them down and volley them back as best we can. Yeah, certainly. And the Reds were doing plenty of chesting down and volleying in during the course of this season. Obviously, the, the treble winning season under Gerard Julio. Last time out, of course, we touched on the, the Bradford game, the uh, the game with Arsenal and Southampton as well. A, a win, defeat and a draw in there for the Reds. But heading into September, things were now beginning to, I suppose, pick back up. It probably wasn't the greatest of starts for Julio's boys, but they certainly got on their way at the start of September. A midweek, a midweek game at Anfield, Michael Owen grabbing a hat-trick against Aston Villa in a, in a 3-1 win. And I suppose we best really kick off this episode 
episode of talking about Michael Owen and even at the age of 20, this sort of being the coming of age for him and really becoming the key cog in the Liverpool machine. Yeah. Um, and this really was the start of the kind of the real flourishing of the of the partnership that he had with Emil Heskey. Um, Heskey had come in in the March of the previous year and done okay, scored a couple of goals. Um but it had been a disappointing end of the season. You know, Liverpool had lost at Bradford on the final day, missed out on the Champions League, didn't score a goal in the last five games under which they won. Which and it was such a pity because it was a really good season that. And so there was a few doubts in the in the summer. You know, which way is it going to go? Obviously, there were some you know some signings that came in with Barnby and McAllister and a few other players. And then there was, as, as you mentioned, you know, a bit of a kind of hit and miss start to the season with a winner draw and a defeat. So the, 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 you know two home games, the international break, and then two home games against Villa and Man- Villa on the Wednesday night and City on the Man City on the Saturday, and um, both of those games I think really showcased the the real superstar striker that Owen was starting to become. I mean, he would only have been twenty, I think, but he he already now had two international tournaments behind him because he, even though England didn't do particularly well at Euro two thousand, Owen did you know Owen did all right. I remember scoring a. a, a a fine goal against Romania that was very, yeah. very similar to his equalising goal in the FA Cup final at the end of this season, where he kind of like a just positioned himself brilliantly and kind of hooked in a volley. Um, and I, I think the opening goal of that Villa game really showcased just just how Owen and Heskey were starting to get on the the same wavelength. I remember I, I had a these were before a couple of years before I got my first, before I had a season ticket. And I remember for the Villa game, I was on the very first row of the Kemlin Road stand, you know, what I would call a worm's eye view, but at the cop end. And for the first goal, Heskey just went on this uh, rumbustious run down the right, put a great ball in and Owen got on the end of it. And Villa really didn't have much of a prayer. Um, Owen got a hat-trick by half-time. Uh, partially helped, I seem to remember, by David James um, flapping a little bit in the Villa goal, maybe giving us a couple of back for some of the traumas that he caused us a few years earlier in, in the mid-90s. The, the, the game that really stood out, probably the best game of the month, I would say, of September 2000, though, was the game on the Saturday against against Man City, which I, I remember coming home from that game and chatting to a mate afterwards and who hadn't gone to the match and saying it was a minor classic, and it was. Uh, Liverpool started really well. I think Heskey and Owen linked up. And, uh, uh, um, lovely ball from Heskey and Owen scored at the cop end. It was 1-0 at half-time, and then round about the hour mark, Dietmar Haman scored a tremendous goal, chested down a loose ball in the end of the box and volleyed it in with his left foot. And I think Liverpool, I think we all thought, right, well, Liverpool... This should be, as as it was often the case against Man City, a comfortable victory. Um, City had just come up, I think. They they having gone down in '96 and then gone down to the third tier in '98. That's right. They came. They won the playoff in '99 and then won at Blackburn, I think, to secure automatic promotion in the summer of 2000. And they bought a couple. Joe Royal was the manager, and they bought in George Weah, which was uh, you know particularly for the for the Man City of 2000, which was very different for younger listeners of the Man City of 2020. It was, that was a real coup. George Weah was an absolute world superstar. He, he got a goal back, which I, I don't know if he got many more goals for City than that, but he, he scored a goal back midway point in the second half to make it 2-1. And then Jimmy Traore gave away a soft penalty and Kevin Horlock equalised, I think. So all of a sudden, with, with less than 10 minutes to go, Liverpool, having looked absolutely comfortable in cruising, were pegged back for 2-2. And... And I think maybe what was maybe the first real sign of the real grit and winning mentality of, of this Hulé team, um, they pretty much went straight down the other end of the field. 
Uh, Christian Ziga took a long throw, and Dietmar Hamann, who was, you know, I would be surprised if he got more, if he got into double figures in terms of goals in his time at Liverpool, ran onto it and slammed, slammed home a low shot at the Anfield Road end. And Liverpool won 3-2, which looking at LSE history and supposed to be put us up to four. But I just remember walking out the ground and feeling really quite elated. It was a, not so much the, through some of the slipshod defending we saw from Liverpool in the second half, but the kind of sense that after the maybe slight flakiness that we'd seen towards the end of the previous season and maybe in the first three games of this season, that there was a there was a grit and a determination and a will to do whatever to do whatever it took to win a game in this side, which obviously would very much go on to become a recurring theme as the season wore on. Yeah, certainly would. Dietmar Hermann got three goals that season, actually, just as you were saying. Uh, had a quick look. Two of them in uh, this game. Yeah, it was in the, the League Cup. Yeah, yeah, you, you're bang on. And in seven years at Liverpool, he scored 11 goals. Two of them obviously 11, coming. Yeah, no, I, I thought when you said, oh, I wonder if he reached double figures. I thought, that's actually, that's a that's a good shout. So I did just have a, a quick look. He did make it to uh, 11 in, in seven years. But on, on Owen then, and sort of the, the burgeoning reputation he had, as you say, he burst on the scene really on the international stage, as well as with Liverpool, of course, his first full season, grabbing 18 uh, league goals. This was going to be, up to this point, his best goal-scoring season. He'd, he'd end the season with 24, of course, the calendar year 2001. He would win the Ballon d'Or award for that season. And I suppose even going into the season, there was beginning even more to be more responsibility and expectation put on his shoulders, of course, with Robbie Fowler picking up a, another injury. I think it was Glenn Torren, wasn't it, in a, a pre-season friendly. Yeah. He got injured and Owen starts the season, as he had already, but it, it allowed Heskey and Owen, I suppose, even in those early weeks to have that partnership, knowing that they would be the two up front week in, week out. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting to know how things might have played out had Robbie not got that injury in pre-season. I don't think he made... He made much of an appearance till maybe the the end of the next the end of the next month. I remember him scoring a winner against Chelsea in the League Cup, end of October, start of November. Now, obviously, you know, as I think, you know, with hindsight, tells us that the arrival of Heskey really meant the writing was on the wall, the wall for Robbie. And you know, it's been well documented that um, you know, as however much admiration he had for for Gerard Houlet, it was clear that Houlet maybe didn't fancy him and, and didn't really see him as part of his long term plans. So to some degree, Robbie's injury might have actually been a bit of a blessing for, for the manager at the start of the season because he avoided having to make an, an awkward decision and gave Owen and Heskey the chance to kind of have a run of games together and build and kind of nurture that partnership together. Um, I mean, you know, Owen was already a massive name, a superstar. You know, it's impossible to overstate the impact that France 98 made that goal against Argentina. And obviously, you know, he... he 97, 98, 98, 99 were pretty poor seasons for Liverpool, pretty dispiriting seasons for Liverpool. And Owen really was the kind of the one shining light during that time. And, you know, he was he was young, he was fresh, he was hungry. He hadn't really had any of the the main injury problems that, that ultimately would come to kind of stunt his development as, as his career wore on. And there was but there was a real sense of optimism starting to build around the club. You know, Hulé had had one full season in charge now. It was clear that the principles, the discipline, the kind of changing culture that he was trying to bring into the club was starting to take root. And, and you know, also some of the players, the, you know, I mentioned McAllister and Barnby, because the two other very experienced international players that came in that summer, the Germans, Marcus Babel and Christian Zieger. 
And, you know, gradually as we got to saw them playing more games and finding their feet in a Liverpool shirt, you started to realise that, yeah, Liverpool are moving up a level now in terms of the, the, the pedigree and the calibre of the players in the team. Although, you know, in this month and really pretty much right the way through the season, it was a very hit and miss. You know, I, I, I haven't gone through it. I'd be surprised if Liverpool had won many more than four or five games in a row at any point in the season because, a lot of the time, it did seem to be one step forward, one step back. I think they became a bit more consistent in the league after Christmas. You know, because obviously the Champions League qualification at that stage was really for the top three, which Liverpool secured on the final day. And remember, in the, in the autumn, there were, you know, there were a few big away defeats, places like Tottenham and Newcastle and Chelsea, that kind of made you wonder, you know, Liverpool are progressing, but we, are, we do still seem to be a little bit away behind the top teams. But... And as we'll get into, this month really saw the start of the cup process. And again, I, I, you can't overstate the value that the Cups gave Liverpool that season in terms of boosting their confidence, their winning mentality, their self-belief. That even if they would have setbacks, regular setbacks, there was a sense of progression. And getting through rounds in the League Cup and the UEFA Cup, certainly before Christmas, I think helped kind of offset the concerns that were happening with the occasional dodgy result which kept happening in the Premier League. Yeah, it wasn't really until I suppose the, the focuses were, were really sharpened that, as you say, the Reds did find some consistency. It was the back end of the season. The last 10 games of the season, Liverpool were undefeated. They won six in a row before the penultimate league game of the season, two-all home draw with Chelsea, and then obviously the yeah. FA Cup final, the UEFA Cup final, and the win at Charlton. But yeah, it was a hit-and-miss time for Liverpool. And I suppose also... You mentioned the experienced players who'd come in during the, the transfer window, but as well, it was a really, I wouldn't say breakout season because Carragher had been around for a while, as had Gerard and Michael Owen, as we've already mentioned. Danny Murphy was a useful squad option through the course of the season for Gerard Houllier. But I suppose with those selection of young homegrown players within the squad, you are always going to have inconsistencies. And maybe yeah. that was beginning to show itself because this really was the season where certainly Carragher, Gerrard and Owen, without Carragher obviously playing at centre-half at the time, they really did become sort of really crucial spine of the team options that whether it be Julier or then obviously Benitez didn't get to call on Owen, but he did have Carragher in his side for all of his all of his reign, that these really were now becoming the options for Liverpool for the next decade and more. Yeah, and it was great to see um, you know, young players coming through and establishing themselves because apart from McManaman and Fowler in the previous decade, there hadn't been too many there hadn't there hadn't been too many that, that had come through from the youth ranks. I mean it was I think what you know, Hude made it very clear from the start that he had great, he placed great belief in young players and the and, and the academy. I think it was it was around about this time that the Kirby Academy kind of had a big influx of money and a and a, and a restructure and a, you know, I think a new build. And these, I think, I always think it, it, if you've got young players in the side, it makes fans a little bit more patient. It, it buys you a little bit more time, a bit more goodwill. If you've obviously if you if if you've paid top money for big players, then people generally are going to expect results straight away. Whereas people are going to have a little bit more. Everyone loves to see local lads in the team, and particularly the you know the, the, the likes of, of Carragher and Gerrard. I mean this this you know Gerrard had ended the previous season by going to the European Championships and playing a very impressive camp. I think he played pretty, was it the one game against Germany that he played. 
the full match, but but did really well in. Um, Carragher had been around the fringe, had been around the team for two or three years by this stage. But I mean, I was almost dis- you know I, I would actually maybe argue that this that perhaps this was Jamie Carragher's breakthrough season. Obviously, he didn't you know he, he at the end of his career he was very much known as a centre half, and it was Rafa Benitez that that really first put him to centre half in um, in the Istanbul year two thousand four five, which obviously was a few years after this. But for his first couple of years, he'd been, you know, he'd, he'd start off in centre mid. He played a bit of centre back in the first couple of seasons, but he, the, the season before, he'd, he'd, he'd largely been kind of played right back most of the time. And I think when Marcus Babel came in, in on a free transfer that summer, I think Jamie's maybe spoken about this himself. There was a kind of not like it wouldn't be the last time in his Anfield career. Maybe there was a sense of the writer being on the wall for him. Was this player being brought in to replace him? Now. Obviously, at the same time, Hule did bring in Christian Ziegen, you know, an established international left back. Um, it didn't really work out for Ziegen at Anfield. He had a few injury problems here and there and did have a habit of making daft mistakes. I mean, let's probably get on to later in the series. One, particularly one during this season at Leeds, the famous 4 3 Mark Baduka game where Liverpool were absolutely cruising at 2 0 early on. And he played a very careless, lazy back pass that changed the course of the game. So, but, but, when I think of this season, Carragher, I associate him with uh, him as being the left back, and bear in mind he was generally a right-footed player. I think that says a lot about his his de- his determination to succeed and to carve a role for himself. You know, one of my abiding memories of, of of this season, much later on, first European away game, I went to the UEFA Cup semi-final in the New Camp, and I ended up sitting on my own. Me and my mate got a ticket through agencies were in different parts of the ground, but I always remember meeting up with him outside the ground afterwards to get the coach back to the airport. And literally, the first thing we both said to each other was, "What about Carragher?" Because he was immense that night. So, yeah, this this was this this was a really important season for for for, for the likes of, of of Carragher and Gerard and Danny Murphy, who you know who did play an important role as the season went on, scored a fair few important goals from midfield, and it gave you know a diff. Obviously, there were young players in the in the, the Roy Evans team of the nineties, which ultimately they would be get tarred with the Spice Boys brush. And you know, it, I think it has to remember it was a different culture at the time. You know, and, you know, Roy Evans is an absolute Liverpool legend, served the club with immense distinction for 40, 50 years. But I think the likes of Carrigan, Gerard, and Murphy maybe had a better chance of succeeding because of the more disciplined environment that Hule was introducing into Anfield at the time. Um, and you know, it, it, it's one of those what ifs. If he'd have been the manager five years earlier, would the likes of McManaman, Fowler, Redknapp have gone on to better things? We'll never know. But it, it was certainly to, to to the young lads of the early two thousands their advantage that they have that they had someone like Hule at the helm to kind of give them that guidance that they needed. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. How credible and how important do you think this season was for the likes of Carragher and Gerrard in particular, obviously, of writing their names into Liverpool folklore? Obviously, they are two modern legends of the club. Mm. A lot to do with what happened in Istanbul, that being obviously four years later on. But this season being a treble winning season, being ending what, what was a drought for Liverpool in terms of winning trophies, won three in one season. And as you say, for, for Carragher and even obviously Gerrard scored in the UEFA Cup final, that coming of age of actually doing it on the big stage at the big moments for Liverpool and ensuring they finally did get over the line, as opposed to, as you say, the, the era before that had been dubbed the Spice Boys. Well, I, I, I think it was very important for for their long term careers because, like any footballer, they had ups and downs and peaks and troughs. But having 
got trophies and medals and memories and muscle memory of winning and what it takes to win big cup ties, big cup finals, big league games. I think that definitely helped them as they went on. And that was maybe something that the likes of McMahon and Fowler and others were missing. When the tougher times came, they didn't have that kind of residue of experience to fall back on. You know, Jamie Carragher, you know, even in the modern era, in his time as a media pundit now, I've heard him say on a number of occasions that this was his favourite season as a player. And, you know, Liverpool achieved more in, 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 in other seasons in terms of, you know, higher, you know nearly higher league positions and winning the European Cup, you know, the, the, the biggest club prize in the game. But as just, just the sense of momentum and excitement as this season went on, it was it it, it, it is hard to describe if you haven't lived through it because obviously football was different then. Um you know, and Liverpool was different. I suppose also on that point as well, though, that we, we always speak about Carragher and Gerrard, and obviously we know Michael Owen's not universally popular with Liverpool fans, and the way in which his move to Real Madrid came about and how he perhaps angled for that move. But is that maybe part of, I suppose, the... I love to say the word resentment, but towards Michael Owen in the fact that he'd been such a key part of this team in the FA Cup final, we know what was to come, that he then wasn't mm. around for Istanbul and the FA Cup final the following year and obviously committing and keeping himself to Liverpool of what he could have done and become one of those modern-day Liverpool legends. Well, yeah, I'd say there's an element of truth to that because obviously one of the, you know, the, the reason why a lot of people were so upset when he left was because of some, they had such a high regard for him. Although, you know, I, I still maintain it wasn't the fact that he'd left, it was the way it was done. Um, you know, there's no doubt the club had declined for two or three years after after this treble year uh, and, and the manager obviously taking ill. And, you know, it, it, if Owen had left, if Owen had left earlier in the summer of 2004 for a proper fee for, for his market value, I don't, I don't think, obviously people would have been sad and, you, you know, you're always going to get some football supporters who can't accept that players don't adore and idolise the club as much as they do. But it was the way it was, It was you know, there were all these noises coming from his camp. Oh, I'll sign a new deal and Liverpool's in my blood and the agent's on sabbatical and the fact that he was left right to the end of the deal, which really allowed Real Madrid to have Liverpool over a barrel and, you know, kind of get shafted really. That's why there was, you know, a sense of resentment at the time. But, you know, the fates of football decreed but the reality is, to my mind, Michael Owen's career never really recovered from that and never really hit the heights it could have done because of that. So there was this, I don't necessarily want to say poetic justice, but there is a, a feeling that really Owen did worse out the deal than Liverpool. And obviously he's spoken at great length and quite poignantly sometimes about how he, you know, it was, he was torn between leaving and he always wanted to come back and how events conspired that never made that, that, never made that a reality. I think you know time is a great healer, and you know for me personally, when 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 I think of Owen now, rather than thinking of the bitterness and the rancor and whatever, I think about how I felt when walking out that ground in, in the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff after we'd won the FA Cup final, and you know the night out I had in town when he scored two against when he, two, when he scored two in the Stadio Olimpico against Rome in the February of this year, you know the the, the hat trick against Newcastle a couple of years before, not long after France '98. He was a phenomenal striker and he, and he gave Liverpool fans a sense of hope and optimism at a time when they really needed it because, you know, as I was saying, this, you know, this was now 10 years after Liverpool had last won a league, which was, you know, the longest time in anyone's living memory. But it also, what, what was rubbing salt in the wound was that our bitterest rivals, Manchester United, were 
absolutely at the top of the game this year. This this would be uh, that they would complete a hat trick of league titles in this year, which they'd never done before. So so Owen gave Liverpool Owen and you know and Carragher and Heskey and Gerrard and these young these young guys that were coming through and and were delivering and giving us great days out and great memories and a lot of joy. Yeah, they they might not maybe have achieved everything that they could and possibly should have done in the game, but sometimes you have to just take a situation for what it is. And you know, there's Liverpool fans have been spoiled for years and years. There's plenty of clubs who would, if they had a season like the treble season, it would be the greatest season in their history. Whereas for Liverpool, you know, it, it, for some fans, it, it probably wouldn't necessarily even mark in the top ten. And so I, I, I think as time goes on. Those wounds do heal a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, you make decisions in life and you have to live with them. Yeah, certainly. Well, before we go, then we best touch on the start of this UEFA Cup run. Of course, the the league fixtures in September would would end with one all draws away at Upton Park to West Ham United and at home to Sunderland. Coincidentally, with Gerrard and Owen scoring in those two games, but bookending that was the away trip to Rapid Bucharest to start the UEFA Cup run. A one nil win away there, and it being that man Nick Barmby, whose Liverpool career started oh so brightly, Dan. Yeah, well, this this was um, Barnby's first goal for Liverpool. Um, I think he started the first couple of games. It obviously was a very controversial transfer with him crossing Stanley Park. Um, I have to admit, it sounds daft to say now, but I don't know, maybe it was my naivety of youth or the fact that I was living at home with my Evertonian father at the time. I didn't really want us to sign him. And I felt kind of quite uncomfortable with it for some reason. It just kind of felt like just one of the things that you don't do. It wasn't like I, didn't, I, I didn't not rate him as a player, but I didn't massively rate him either. Um, so it was, it, it was, it was great to be back in Europe. You know, Liverpool had um, Liverpool had not played in Europe the previous season, um, and really hadn't done much in Europe for for quite some time. I think they'd not been knocked out by Celta Vigo the way for the year before. Um, but there was a sense with you know having a, a you know a, a, a European manager and you know some more you know foreign players in the team now that this uh, that this this team could be. Could have the chance to, to do well in the UEFA Cup. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we all kind of comforted ourselves with when Champions League qualification was missed out at the end of the previous season was the fact that, well, is this team ready for the Champions League? Maybe not. But you know, a good UEFA Cup run could build some valuable experience to hopefully make them in a better position to, to compete in the Champions League the following season. And of course, the, the great thing about the UEFA Cup at this stage was it was still two-legged. Old-fashioned knockout football. You know, to me, one of the one of the things that really has killed the the Europa League by and large as a spectacle these days is the group stages. Whereas with these matches, even in the you know the first round in September against Rapid Bucharest, there was that element of danger. You know that um, you know all you could take you could have one bad ten minutes and you're out the competition. Liverpool played the away leg first, got a one nil result, one nil win. You kind of think, well, that's that's that should that should be more than adequate to get through. Well, I think we all turned it to Anfield for the second leg, fully expecting you know, a comfortable two, three, four nil victory, and it didn't work out that way. And it ended up being quite a nervy night, and particularly the last ten minutes when the knowledge that if the uh, if the visitors could get themselves a goal now would be heading to extra time. I mean, Everton fans will tell you about you know, their their greatest European season in 1985. They had a similar experience in the opening round against University College Dublin. Literally, virtually a student side from Ireland. When I get, I, I think yes, no, I think they they, they drew the they, they drew the away leg nil nil, and then won the away leg one nil. 
It's like, do they get do they already go up nil nil? One one nil at home, but we're absolutely flapping in the last few minutes because if the visitors equalise, then at one one they're out on the away goal, and that to me is the essence of cup football. You know, you've got to have that element of there's got to be that element of peril to to just give it that little bit of edge, and and this season had it um, right the way through. You know, pretty much through every tie of the round, Liberec in the in, in the next round. I think Liverpool trailed in the away leg, having had a narrow victory at home. Um, Olympiacos after that. But gradually, as I say, everything just round by round, month by month, this season just seemed to build with excitement and belief that there was a resolve and a resilience and, and a toughness to this Liverpool team that maybe we hadn't seen in the previous decade. And, and, ho- and obviously fans were desperate to stop United winning everything. It was obviously also before, I suppose, the greed really of UEFA and European club competition took over with, as you say, there wasn't the group format. It was straight knockout for the Premier League. It was what three teams qualified for the Champions League, which hadn't been fully sort of extended, I don't think, by this point to 32 teams. If not, if it had, it certainly obviously didn't include four, sometimes obviously even five English sides within it. And you look at the UEFA Cup run that, that Liverpool did have and the names that they, they did play, certainly the, the latter stages, obviously, of it. The last 16, Roma, Porto in the quarters, Barcelona in the semi-final and Alaves in the final. Of course, we'll get on to all of those in good time. But just looking at it, it was it, it was exactly what European knockout football was all about, playing big sides in big occasions regardless of whether it be the, the Champions League European Cup or whether it be, the, in this case, obviously, the UEFA Cup. Yeah, and, and, and you have to remember Liverpool fans have been starved of that, really, for the previous decade. Obviously, you know, the, the, the ban only ended in 91. And I think I'm right, you know, Liverpool, I think there were at least two or three seasons in the previous decade where Liverpool weren't in Europe at all. And when they, and when they were in, they very, I think, I think it would only be 97, the Cup Winners' Cup, when they made it after Christmas and then got to the semi-finals before capitulating to Paris Saint-Germain, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, in the early stages, it, it kind of, you know, that they were smaller teams. Well, I, I've always got very fond memories of, of the, the third round tie against Olympiacos. I mean, when you talk Liverpool Olympiacos, you generally think Steven Gerrard in 2004, and rightly so, what a night that was. But the, 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 the Olympiacos Mark 1 was also a great night. Liverpool had drawn 2-2 away. And um, it was a cold, rainy, de- early December night at Anfield. But Liverpool scored two goals in either half, I think, from Heskey and, Heskey and Barmby. And it was electric. And, and you know, for, 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 for the likes of me that kind of had missed out on really most of the glory days of the 70s and 80s, this was our first real taste of it. And we wanted more of it. And so the, you know, there, there was just that... The, get, if you can get, to get, get through Christmas and New Year, get to the knockout stages, particularly in Europe, it became even more attractive because I think this is one of the first seasons when they had this thing where teams from the Champions League who'd finished third in the group would drop into the UEFA Cup. So that's why how Liverpool ended up playing the likes of Roma and Barcelona. So that was, that was another of the, of the kind of the carrots being dangled in front of us in these early, you know, supposedly smaller fixtures against the likes of Bucharest and Liberec. There, there was some big plum ties eventually on the horizon, but it's the same with the FA Cup. If you can't get past whoever it is, say Rotherham in the third round, then you're not going to necessarily be playing Leeds in the fourth or Arsenal in the final or City in the fifth round. And that's the beauty of cup football. You can't get too you can't get too far ahead of yourself. You've got to finish what's on your plate and take what's in front of you. And that was one of the great skills of this Liverpool team <clears throat> during this season. They've had 63 matches 
in so many different competitions, so many different contexts, so many different periods of form. And yet more often than not, they manage to find the solution for most of the problems that were in front of them. And that's why, you know, many of us will will always think back very, very fondly to this season. Yeah, exactly. I suppose the UEFA Cup run proving that while sometimes you can get a bit of luck in knockout competitions, if you've got two legs all the time, you do have to be the superior over those two legs. And Nick Barnby scoring four times in the first six games, those being all four of his European goals that he would get for Liverpool during the, the course of the season. But Dan, before we go, that just about sort of rounds us off for September's edition. We will, of course, be back next month to look through October and some of the other themes that ran through the course of the season. But I suppose those draws, those damaging draws with West Ham and Sunderland, really, as much as it only left Liverpool three points off the pace in the Premier League, they were sitting sixth after seven games. They'd won three, drawn three, lost one. And I suppose it was a sign of the side that they scored 12 in the league at this stage but they shipped 10 albeit Julier probably did want Liverpool to be a bit tighter than what they'd been before and perhaps as you you even referenced at the top that those inconsistencies were maybe going to come home to, to roost in the uh, in the long run the next month would would start away at Chelsea and end with a Merseyside derby so it was one of those times really coming around where Liverpool had the games coming thick and fast I suppose as you say if they've got um if they've got games coming up in 63 games through the course of the season, there was no time to rest up. No, no. And I think maybe that's why there was a certain sense of patience and understanding that, um, that things were going to be a little bit up and down. Um, you, know, you know, there'd been quite a big influx of players the previous summer, you know, the Hippier, Ensho, Haman, Sweetcher axis. And then there was another four or five that came in. And, you know, and, 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 a massive cultural shift in the club in terms of how things were done. You know, from the sounds of it, things were a lot stricter in terms of, you know, discipline and drinking and going out. And so, and with young players, you know, then some are going to be more receptive to that than others. Some are going to, the penny is going to drop quicker with some than it is with others. So, I mean, if we're talking about those those September draws, I think mention should be made of Bernard Diomed's moment of moment in the spotlight he was one of the, the summer signings that you year. definitely had to we get him very... in well he uh, it was one of those one of those real sliding doors moments he was he was part of the french world cup winning squad um i remember thinking yeah he had you know brown dreadlocks looked a bit like rude hullet and i remember thinking wow we signed our own little superstar here and I, 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 i'm not sure if sunderland was his debut um i remember kevin phillips scoring a superb solo goal for sunderland he, you know, it, it, this was when he was absolutely at his peak as a as one of the best strikers in the Premier League. I think Owen equalised, possibly ahead of him from the corner of a free kick. And Diomed had a Diomed had a decent game and was deprived of what could have been one of the great Anfield debut goals. He scored an overhead kick that I think was scrambled somehow off the line by I think Torres Thomas Sorensen in the in the Sunderland goal. I remember I was in the main stand towards the Anfield Road end, and I remember being convinced it had gone in. Now, obviously, these are the days long before goal line technology and all the rest of it. But um, I, I don't think he played many games after that. You know, he, he became a very much a peripheral figure and his career kind of faded into the ether. But he did, did, But for that one after one sunny September afternoon against Sunderland Anfield, he bestrode the turf like, a, like a, a little mini French colossus and had us all dreaming of, you know, a, a World Cup winner leading us to greater heights. Um, it wasn't to be for the DMM, but there were there were other other players who would 
show their worth as, as the season went on and kind of really make a name for himself. Yeah, three of his five Liverpool appearances would come, actually. I just looked it up in the month of September. He came off the bench yeah. against Rapid Bucharest. In fact, actually, I think he'd started the first game away. Yeah, he did start away. He started, as you say, against Sunderland. Didn't get a goal. He got himself a booking instead. And then he was actually a starter as well in the uh, the home game with Bucharest as well and had to wait until January for another appearance. If you haven't checked it out, actually, Ian Doyle, incidentally, during lockdown, wrote a brilliant piece on the Echo um, about Diomed and when he signed for Liverpool mm. and the great player that didn't quite work out for Liverpool. As I say, do head to the Echo to give that one a read but Dan thanks a lot for your time great to reminisce once more on the treble winning season we'll be back during the month of October with our latest instalment and we may well have a guest alongside as well but from myself Guy Clark and Dan Kay thanks for joining us here on the Blood Red channel it's bye for now you've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo